Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. The origins of Washington's debt ceiling drama lie on the muddy battlefields of the Western Front. When America entered World War I in 1917, it became clear that the way it normally funded costly endeavours wouldn't work. At that time, whenever the government needed an injection of cash, it would ask Congress to issue bonds or raise taxes related to specific projects. It had done this to fund the building of the Panama Canal, for example. But for a global conflict of uncertain length and cost, something more flexible was needed. The Second Liberty Loan Act of 1917 allowed the government to borrow up to $11.5 billion. What it spent that on was at its discretion. It was the first time Congress had issued a limit on federal borrowing, though the aim was actually to make it easier for the government to spend money. That's not how Washington works now. Politicians have been waging their battle to raise the debt ceiling, which comes around roughly every other year. They have a deal, which is better than not having a deal. But this is an exhausting, pointless ritual. I'm John Prideaux, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today... Why does America have this daft system, and what difference does it make? The deal to raise America's debt ceiling has been passed by Congress. The government will now be able to resume borrowing money to pay its bills and avoid a default. The last-minute agreement will suspend the debt ceiling and flatten some categories of spending for two years until after the next election. Which party will be happier with the deal? And can America ever escape this debt ceiling doom loop? On this podcast, we occasionally give the impression that members of Congress are a useless bunch incapable of coming together and legislating in a bipartisan fashion. But this week, we're talking about something that passed, which is unusual. And with me to do that are Idris Kaloun in Washington and Charlotte Howard in New York. Charlotte, what's going on in New York? It is a scorcher in New York. We're recording this very early on Friday morning, and I, for some reason, thought it was a good idea to run to the office. But I had two separate garbage men give me running tips as I was on my way up 6th Avenue, which was completely deserted otherwise, on my pace and my stride. And I like the idea of New York's garbage men as the unofficial track and field coaches of the city. Idris, have you been getting any useful 
athletics tips from your garbage folks in, in DC? No, this is why I use a Peloton. It's completely uh, divorced from other human beings, and there's no chance of anyone seeing you exercise. So uh, yeah, I, I commend you for your, uh, your feats. Okay, in a minute, we're going to get into the details of what's in this deal. But before we do this, I have a mea culpa. In our mailbag episode, which we recorded when I was a bit jet-lagged, I managed to forget that Brazil has had a female president, Dilma Rousseff. And this is particularly embarrassing for me because I'm a former Brazil correspondent at The Economist and I've interviewed Dilma. So thank you for the people who pointed out that mistake on Twitter and LinkedIn and apologies to all the Dilmistas out there. Right, Idris, you've been getting into the details of what's in the debt ceiling bill and working with our excellent colleague, the economist's US economics editor, Simon Rabinovich. And once you guys had done your work, you tracked him down and spoke to him for the podcast. So, Simon, I wanted to ask, have you seen the Austin Powers movies? Uh, I have seen them, but many, many years ago. Do you remember the scene where the guy is about to detonate a nuke? And he holds the whole world ransom, and he says that he wants a payment of $1 million. And then someone says, that's not very much money. Why don't you ask for $100 billion? That, that That is the classic Austin Powers scene. Yes, I do remember that. How many $100 billion do you think the Republicans got for threatening to blow up the world? Well, they, they would have liked to have asked for many thousands of billions of dollars, but they got something less than that. You know, if, if you go back to the start of the year, to the start of the Congress, the Republican pledge was by the end of the decade to balance the budget, which would involve, you know, roughly $20 trillion of, of cuts. The bill they passed about a month ago leading up to these negotiations had roughly $5 trillion of cuts in it. In the end, uh, what has been agreed to involves officially a little more than $1 trillion of cuts unofficially, it's going to be quite a bit less than that, maybe maybe even just $200 billion. So then in your view, is there anyone who can claim victory, either Kevin McCarthy or Joe Biden? Well, I think in a narrow political sense, the Democrats can claim victory. They, they protected the key kind of legislative victories of Joe Biden, of the Democrats of the past year. So especially the Inflation Reduction Act, the big package of policies that involves spending on everything from EVs to renewable energy. The Republicans had hoped to gut that. It stands fully intact. Part of that as well was additional funding for the IRS. That basically remains intact as well. So in a narrow political sense, I think the Democrats did actually protect all of their key priorities. But I say narrow because I think broadly put, you know, th there is something fundamental to the debt ceiling debacle, which is that America's fiscal path is on a very, very worrisome trajectory. That has not been altered by this deal. Uh, that's neither a victory for the Democrats nor for the Republicans. I think that is storing up problems for the future that have not been resolved. So it's not going to change the country's fiscal trajectory. Is it going to have very much of a macroeconomic impact at all on anything like inflation or employment? Or do you think it's uh, basically a drop in the bucket compared to the size of federal spending? So the, the idea that there might be cutbacks of upwards of $1.5 trillion over the next decade, that, that was the scoring of the Congressional Budget Office, a neutral scorekeeper. You know, when you're talking about cuts of more than a trillion dollars, that sounds pretty big. But you got to bear in mind that 
Number one, that's over the course of a decade. That's not in one year. Number two, annually, the federal government is spending something close to the order of $10 trillion a year. Uh, and number three, the CBO score is, is most definitely an overstatement. What it's looking at is the projected cuts over the decade. But in fact, the debt ceiling only involves enforced cuts for the next two years, after which all of the restraint is basically voluntary. And as we know, the Congress and voluntary restraint don't really go together. So when, when you look at just what actually is going to be delivered, you know, you work out that there's probably going to be cutbacks of about $200 billion over the next two years. The macroeconomic impact, the best estimates are that that will shave maybe a tenth or two tenths off GDP growth over the next year or two. That might push the unemployment rate up by 0.1 percentage points, bearing in mind, of course, that the unemployment rate right now is 3.4%, a five-decade low. It, it's negligible impacts on growth, on inflation, on unemployment, on the overall fiscal picture. You know, in 2011, when I think America came closest to defaulting over a very similar uh, debate when Barack Obama was president, one credit ratings agency did downgrade the AAA rating of America's credit. I don't think we got nearly as close this time, but there was a lot of attention to the fact that even getting that close meant that America faced higher borrowing costs. Do you think that anything like that is going to happen now, or do you think that markets have uh, just adjusted to this slightly insane biannual occurrence. So the, the higher borrowing costs in 2011, you know, people have talked about that. It's it's actually relatively modest if you look at it kind of in the grand sweep of, of public finances in America. Estimates are that the additional financing burden for America was maybe one or two billion dollars. Well, against a federal budget that runs into the five trillions of dollars, a couple of extra billion here or there is it's even less than a rounding error. Now, there is the possibility that there might be an additional downgrade. It's not happened yet, but Fitch has, has warned that it, it is still possible. But no, I, I think you're right. I think the market has adjusted to the insanity. And I think Washington, D.C., has also adjusted to the insanity as well. But there is still this fundamental concern that, you know, if you do have this as being a basic biennial process, at some point will the system break down? We saw that there was a minority, but but a solid minority of the Republican Party that not only wasn't concerned about the prospects of a default, but may have even welcomed the chaos that would result from a default. And who's to say that that minority won't get bigger over time and that with these repeat biennial adventures at some point, the taste for adventure, the taste for something new will provoke Congress to do something truly insane. So clearly the market was right to, to be confident that there wasn't going to be a crash this time around. But I think assuming that things will always stay on the road would, would be incredibly complacent. Charlotte, there are lots of interesting details in this debt ceiling deal, which we'll get into. But before we get there, let's answer the Washington, D.C., question, which is, who did well in this negotiation? Did Biden's White House do well? Did Kevin McCarthy do well? Did they both do well? That's an acceptable answer as well. What's your view on that? I think they both muddled through. I mean, it's worth remembering just how delicate Kevin McCarthy's position is, his control over the party. This is someone who had more than a dozen votes in order to be confirmed as House Speaker, and he had to placate various members of his party in order to achieve that position. 
Biden is in really a no-win situation, in my view. I'm curious in Idris's opinion of this. But either he could have been more firm, which maybe would have had a better outcome for him, and he seems tough but also carried really high risks. There are members of his caucus who will see him as having been too too lenient on different measures. And then there was one thing that was included in the deal that is noteworthy. There was a pipeline that was approved as part of a broader change for improving and speeding up the, the process for completing environmental reviews of new projects. But there's a pipeline that was approved that passes through West Virginia. That is good news for Joe Manchin and a sign of how Democrats actually do want to bolster his prospects going into re-election. I think it's notable in this deal the extent to which it just is very modest. I mean, J.P. Morgan estimates that it would lower federal spending by 0.2 percent of GDP next year. In the Obama 2011 deal, it was 0.7 percent. So this is less than a third of that. And then I was struck by the cuts that are agreed to. Some of them are substantive cuts, but then there are also cuts that are only cuts in political terms. So there's $21.4 billion in cuts for the IRS. The IRS had, had hoped to use some of this budget to boost tax enforcement. So that cut actually raises government deficits, according to the Congressional Budget Office. And then the work requirement says that able-bodied adults, to get food aid, they should be required to work if they're up to age 54, which is up from 49. But then it also eliminates work requirements for vets, homeless people, young people who had been in foster care. And the result of that is it increases federal spending. So I think it's worth underscoring the degree to which this is a deal that is both modest and it contains elements that don't entirely advance their stated goal. Idris, how about you? I know you had some off-the-record conversations with folks in the White House before the deal was done. What was your what's your view on how smartly they played their hand and how Kevin McCarthy played his? Um, I think the White House's initial position that it would refuse to negotiate over anything other than a completely clean debt ceiling increase to have been a mistake. I thought that put them in a weak position. But in the end, I think that they can claim credibly that they defended all their priorities from what Republicans wanted to do. The Republicans wanted initially to defund all of the clean energy subsidies that were passed as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. That didn't happen. They wanted to eliminate the possibility of student debt relief, which hasn't happened, or you know, student debt payments. I don't know if I'd call it relief. So I think that in the end, you know, Joe Biden escapes with his legislative legacy intact. The Republicans come away with some face-saving spending cuts. Uh, as Simon pointed out, they're going to be less than they appear. And there are also, I've been reading about these sort of side agreements between Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden that didn't appear in legislative text that I think will emaciate the effect of the, the deal even further. But we, d- we won't know exactly what that meant until we see it in practice. So Charlotte, there's a lot of detail in this deal, and there are a lot of details that Idris says we don't yet know. But overall, big picture, not a huge amount changes, right, on this important question of America's debt dynamics. I mean, I was really struck in the piece that Simon and Idris wrote this week uh, in The Economist that federal debt held by investors at home and abroad has reached about 93% of GDP now, which is about triple the level it was on the eve of the global financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. I mean, that is a huge increase. America has really big fiscal challenges, not just in the very long term, but in the future in a way that feels increasingly urgent. So we had an episode on entitlements recently that explored this in depth, and I'd encourage listeners to go back and hear that. But there are challenges for Social Security. There are challenges for Medicare. 
These are the really big programs for retirees that kick in after 65. And the government needs to deal with these in, in substantive ways if it wants to keep on providing these services that members of both political parties are very loath to do away with. Kevin McCarthy, in trying to underscore that he does take the long-term fiscal challenges seriously, will set up a bipartisan commission to outline other budget cuts to try to bring the federal deficit under control. It's just such classic Washington. I mean, I feel like all bipartisan commissions, it's like seeing a fire in one room and then filling a glass of water and putting it in a different room and hoping for the best. It's it's just a very weird process for dealing with major problems. But, Idris, do you put any faith in the idea that the Bipartisan Commission could come up with an idea that would be sensible, and then if that idea were sensible, that it would be advanced in Washington? I'm I'm more hopeful than maybe you are. Generally, commissions don't go anywhere. You're right about that. There have been ones that have. I mean, the Greenspan Commission in the 1980s was the one that made the last big changes to entitlements. Obviously, that was a different time. I mean, nowadays, people are so polarized that maybe they wouldn't agree on anything. But I, I don't think it hurts to to try and, and figure something out. Trying to negotiate with a nuclear bomb about to detonate, which is basically what uh, the system we have now, isn't, isn't ideal for the kinds of changes to entitlement programs you would need. I'm generally in favor of legislators doing more substantive work and less backbenching, voting on things they haven't read, and especially less fundraising. So anything that's, that's closer to, to real thinking about what the problems of the world are, uh, I'm in favor of. This is an outbreak of Idris optimism. I, I love it. I'm going to underline that and move on quickly before you change your mind. Okay, we'll go back to another debt ceiling wrangle in a moment to look at the origin story of what went down in Washington this week. But first, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you take out a subscription to The Economist. If you're not already a subscriber, then we have a special offer for you, a free 30-day digital subscription. So you can give it a try if you like. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer to access that. Charlotte and Idris, if folks listening to this who are not subscribers do take out a subscription, what do you think they'll particularly enjoy from the past week or so's coverage? We have a cover this week about the effect of falling fertility and its knock-on consequences. And I think this is something that we often think about in the context of individual countries, so people will be familiar with an aging population in Japan, for instance, or, or Russia's demographic problem. But we think about this in really global terms. And I also happen to love the cover image, which is quite amusing. So I would direct everyone to our leader and briefing on that. I thought Becca Jackson, uh, our colleague in D.C., who's going to be covering the South for us, wrote an excellent piece about the parallel conservative economy and the crop of companies that are out there in case you want to make sure that your wireless network is uh, appropriately right-wing, or your coffee, or uh, or your dating app. Uh, it's, it's a delightful read. That is a really nice piece. It also contained a potted history of previous attempts by groups to create their own sort of parallel economies within the US, including a detail about a lesbian collective in the 1970s who tried to create a kind of circular economy with no men in it. So it's just a great piece. Go read it. Once again, go to economist.com slash podcast offer for a free 30-day trial subscription. The 1994 midterms brought the canonical red wave. Last night was one of the most decisive off-year elections in American history. 
The American people voted consistently for smaller government, for lower taxes, for less bureaucracy, for less power in Washington and more power back home. Led by Newt Gingrich brandishing his contract with America, Republicans flipped control of both the House and the Senate. Gingrich promised a new era of small government and low spending. And every day in the new Congress for the first 100 days, the opening item of business will be to read into the record the contract to remind the American people and to remind ourselves what we said we'd do. That set up a budget showdown with the Clinton White House the following year. But it was also a showdown over the debt ceiling. Before 1995, the borrowing limit had been tied to the budget under the Gephardt rule. That meant that when Congress passed a new budget, the debt ceiling just increased with it, without much fuss. Now, with Congress under new management, Republicans wanted to spend time discussing public spending, as then-Congressman John Kasich explained. Let me just suggest to you that people don't, on our side are not, we're not real anxious to incur more debt without having a commitment by the White House that they're going to balance the budget in seven years and stop ringing up the debt. As the old budget expired, the borrowing limit was reached. The debt ceiling had become a ticking bomb. In November, the Treasury Department began having to take extraordinary measures, now a familiar phrase as the ceiling approaches, to keep the US paying its bills. It borrowed money from employee pension funds, the federal government's version of leaving an IOU in a child's piggy bank. This uh, meeting of the Rules Committee will come to order. Today we are here to consider a short-term debt limit extension. Congress passed a bill that would have raised the debt ceiling enough to last for a month or so, but which also tried to stop Treasury from using those extraordinary measures. Representative Gerald Solomon laid out the aim of the bill. As we all know, the... uh, The federal government has uh, run up huge deficits over the years. It's uh, about uh, $4.9 trillion now. And uh, this uh, measure before us will uh, increase the ability of the uh, federal government to to borrow at a uh, higher deficit. Good morning. Today I am vetoing H.R. 2586 which the congressional leadership sent to me last night. It would allow the United States to pay its debts for another month, but only at a price too high for the American people to pay. Clinton refused to sign it. The clash over the debt ceiling and the budget dragged on. The government shut down twice that winter. But eventually, in the face of dismal polling, Republicans backed down and passed a budget in January. But Congress still didn't raise the debt ceiling. The borrowing limit and budget were now well and truly separated. Treasury found some even more extraordinary measures to take. At the end of March, just as the X date was drawing close, Congress passed a bill raising the debt ceiling. Congresswoman Barbara Kennelly celebrated on the House floor. It's a good day for the full faith and credit of the United States. We are raising the debt limit. We should have done it five months ago, but we're doing it today, and I am pleased that that is happening. Republicans seem to lose that bout over the budget and the debt ceiling. But by separating the two, they've succeeded over time in drawing attention to both, just as Newt Gingrich had intended. So Idris, as 
I mentioned in the introduction, the debt ceiling dates from the First World War and Congress's desire to help the federal government fund that war. And then up until 1994, there are a few you know, debt ceiling run-ins between the president and Congress. There's a famous one in 1953 with President Eisenhower. But broadly speaking, the debt ceiling gets raised without too much fuss until 1994 and the Gingrich Revolution, right? Yeah, the fussiness has increased over time. So, you know, since 1983, there have been 48 times, I guess 49 now, where uh, Congress has passed a measure to increase the debt limit. The Gephardt rule that we were just talking about made that a little bit more automatic, but now it is less automatic and therefore fraught. It's become the only leverage point, uh, oftentimes in divided government, which forces a deal. And, you know, it's an kind of unhealthy way of doing so. I mean, this deal in particular, the one that we're talking about now, which is a fairly modest one, is something that could just as well have come out of a normal budgetary negotiation process, in which the uh, end result of non-agreement is, you know, a government shutdown, which is, uh, you know, not great, but uh, not calamitous, like meeting the debt ceiling would have been. America's quite exceptional in in this way. Not only is it the biggest economy and the most important economy to the world, it's one of the few that has anything like this mechanism. Kenya has a debt limit that I think that they use. Uh, I I haven't paid much attention, but I don't think that it it provokes the kind of angst that that the American one does. And then the Danish also have a a debt limit of two trillion kroner, which they are, I think, about uh, a fourth of the way up to. So, uh, you know, it doesn't really affect Danish politics all that much either. I think that there's a risk of thinking that now this is resolved. It's yet another example of political theater in Washington's dysfunction, but it doesn't have that much of an effect. And I do think that that's a bit too complacent. And this is problematic, right, for two main reasons, I think. One is this broader question of whether there's a risk premium that is applied to government bonds because... Washington is so dysfunctional and that there will be a broader undermining of the dollar's dominance internationally and and, and promote China's argument that uh, American democracy is a vulnerability. So that's one set of, of challenges. And then the other one is just that the measures that are taken to sustain the government as all of this mess played out it's not without consequence, right? There are people who have retirements who have delayed payments and so forth. But then there are also broader consequences as you try to replenish, for example, the, the Treasury general account. So Morgan Stanley was writing about this last week, that the amount in that account was drained below $50 billion, and there's going to be a real surge of T-bills, of Treasury bills that are issued in order to replenish it. And then that then has knock-on possible knock-on implications across the banking system, which, as we know, is already very vulnerable in the wake of SVB, and there are lots of regional banks that are dealing with liquidity challenges. So it's not like we all shrug our shoulders and say, oh, Washington, aren't they petulant and dysfunctional? And then you move on. There are broader knock-on effects. Idris, I think all of us, despite our sort of concerns about America's debt, think that the debt ceiling is just a really silly thing, right? And Congress should get rid of it. It doesn't work in the way that it's supposed to, or at least Gingrich thought it would, to try and set up a serious conversation about debt reduction or deficit reduction. And it just is this ridiculous piece of theatre. Actually, it's worse than that, because there's a risk 
you know, the more often Congress does this, the higher the chance that something does go wrong and we do end up with a default, right? So I think we all agree that this is a daft thing that America should get rid of. There was some debate in the run-up to this one about how that might happen, right? Including invoking the 14th Amendment and some, some other things. Do you see a, a path to Congress doing it? And, and if not, sort of why are members of Congress so keen to hang on to this kind of weird self-destructive tool? I guess that question is easier to start with, which is that the reason it's useful is that you get leverage, right? Otherwise, Kevin McCarthy would have had to do a budget deal uh, over the appropriations process, and it might have gone even worse for him. So I think that's why it's it's held on to and utilized. I think the cleanest way for Congress to get rid of the debt ceiling would be to just simply pass a law uh, eliminating it. You know, it's unlikely that Republicans would unilaterally disarm something that's proven to be useful for them. So then people start to think about legal options. And some people have invoked the 14th Amendment, which um, among its other sections has one at the end, which says that the validity of the public debt shall not be questioned. I think if you read the full text of that amendment, it's fairly clear that they're talking about uh, civil war liabilities that were formed. And I think that a textualist Supreme Court wouldn't really agree with that interpretation, that it basically rendered the uh, debt ceiling to be unconstitutional. But no one really wants to engage in these kinds of legal debates when there's an active threat of the US economy imploding. So I don't know if it'll get resolved that way either. Charlotte, one line of argument I read in the run-up to this debt ceiling deal was that the Democrats goofed by not getting rid of the debt ceiling when Donald Trump was president, that there was a time when powers divided between Congress and the White House. The Democrats had some leverage then when Trump was president, and that he probably would have been quite up for getting rid of the debt ceiling altogether, being fond of debt as he is. And actually, they didn't use that leverage, and they could have solved this whole thing you know, once and for all then but was so reluctant to work with Donald Trump for understandable reasons that that didn't happen. Do you think that's a plausible line of argument or do you think it's just um, a sort of convenient retrospective look at what was actually a pretty messy process at the time? I don't really know the answer to that question, but I don't know why Republicans would really give this up as an opportunity for political theater that they can seize every few years. I mean, I guess I think if you had Republicans in control for long enough, weirdly, that would be what would precipitate some kind of debt ceiling increase. If you had a two term Republican who felt like this was going to be a problem that they'd have to encounter repeatedly over the course of their tenure, then maybe you could get more Republicans to sign on, I guess. But it seems like this is an opportunity that they like to have. All right, let's pause there. We'll be back in a moment to talk about how this particular deal made it through Congress, to talk to our wonderful colleague, James Bennett, the Economist Lexington columnist. And of course, there'll be the quiz. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Last minute wrangling over the debt limit has unfortunately become a regular event in Washington, as we've already discussed. I asked our Lexington columnist, James Bennett, who he thinks came out of this one well, if anyone. I think in the end, Joe Biden did play this well. I think he handled the negotiation well and came out with a result that on balance is pretty good for him. He obviously had to back off his initial position, which was that Congress should give him a clean bill that simply raised the debt ceiling without making any other demands. That's a victory for the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy. Both of them, I think, come out of this looking stronger. Kevin McCarthy looks more in control of his caucus than people believed he was. He looks, to my mind, significantly less of a dope than he'd been treated in a lot of the political coverage. He's managed his own politics quite well. But, John, that is so grating on the curve. Like, to call this a success of any sort is basically to grade it against the incredible stupidity of our politics by any absolute standard of good governance. This is a, is a tremendous failure, I think. We focus, I think rightly, a lot on partisanship in Congress to the degree that when something bipartisan happens, like the debt ceiling deal passes with a lot of support from Democrats and you know, a good chunk of the Republican caucus as well, it's kind of a shock. It's an exception to the norm, right? Do you see any other areas where it's possible for the House to come together in this sort of bipartisan way beyond trivial things like the renaming of post offices? Yeah, if I could just say quickly, you're right, it is a bipartisan triumph in a sense to get this done. And so I hate to sound so negative about it, but but again, it's, there's just so much make-believe involved in this particular deal that when you think about the needs of the country, it's hard to applaud as loudly as one might like to in a situation where you actually see bipartisan progress like this made. Other areas, I think the, the big areas where there is potential still for bipartisan action remain Silicon Valley, you know, something around privacy protection, even social media regulation. And then similarly, uh, China, the bipartisan committee that's looking at U.S.-China relations, seems to be one of the more highly functioning congressional committees right now. So I think those are two areas where, where we can see some progress. And I do think we, maybe one outcome of this process will be a better relationship between Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden they might have created a basis of, for, some, for some trust going forward. It's possible. Because in some ways, there's less that divides the Democratic and the Republican Party than used to be the case, right, on pure policy, in the sense that you know, the Republican Party is no, no longer keen on large-scale entitlement reforms in the way that it was pre-Trump. You, know, you have some disagreement over taxes, but the fact that both sides seem content just to carry on borrowing and debt markets seem to find that acceptable as well, it means that there's actually less on the policy front that kind of divides these two parties that, than used to be the case, perhaps. But do you see, Kevin McCarthy did talk a fair bit about deficit reduction and is trumpeting this deal as a sort of triumph of deficit reduction, which, as you say, it's not really. Do you see the Republican Party at the moment kind of returning to a focus on that? Do you think that's a real thing? Or do you think it's just about the point we're at in the cycle? You know, and if Republicans had a majority in the Senate and had the White House concern for deficit reduction would go out the window again, as it did um, in the first couple of years uh, when Donald Trump was president? 
I think the latter. I mean, I think this is this is what happens when a Democrat is in the White House and the Republicans control one House of Congress. All of a sudden, the deficit matters again. And that's just been the pattern now for the last half century or so. And I think if the if the Democrats, you know, take unified control of government in the next election or the Republicans do, I wouldn't expect this to be top of mind. Now, it has been interesting to watch the, all the Republican presidential candidates, I think pretty much all of them at this point, come out against this deal and complain about the deal, attack the deal, and watch Republicans nevertheless overwhelmingly vote for it in the House. And as much as I was complaining about this deal as being make-believe, a demonstration of kind of grown-up behavior, which is not something you necessarily <laughs> expect. So that's that's kind of a hopeful sign. So lest we forget, the debt ceiling deal, James, is a temporary reprieve, and it's an agreement that runs until January 2025, by which time American politics, no doubt, will be quite different. Are you excited to go through all of this again in a couple of years' time? It's so awful, John. You know, like, it used to be... It was bad when the fights were about shutting the government down. That's how that used to be the major lever for driving concessions. Again, Republicans in the House usually squaring off for the Democratic administration. What now looks good about that approach is that's about authorizing spending for programs, right? It seems like a far more legitimate thing to fight about to me than fighting about whether we pay the bills that we've actually already committed to paying. The Republican logic that they've always used for budgeting is, you know, you have to make a budget as a homeowner. You have to pay your bills. You have to live within your means, and government should live within their means too. I don't know how they can justify within that kind of allegory the idea that it's okay just to walk away after you've promise to pay and not actually pay. But that's that's the reality. That's now the lever that's going to be used. We will face this again in two years. And and once again, you know, it's it's this terrible, sickening feeling where you tell yourself, well, at the last minute, they always get a deal. They always get a deal. But you cannot avoid the fear that this time it could be different. And next time it may well be different. So, Charlotte, as James ended up by saying there, we're going to face this again in two years' time. And what's so frustrating is Congress really needs to take a hard look at federal spending and revenue. And in theory, the debt ceiling would be a forcing mechanism to do that. And yet, it's just not. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm struck by the gap between how much people pay attention to this and and how much it does actually matter. So, If they were to default, that would have really mattered. But even if they didn't, this whole fight undermines faith in the American system. And then it just matters because if you have a big fight and it doesn't yield anything beyond skating past a very short-term problem. I was really struck by a figure in in Idris's piece that interest payments, that that the American government will spend more on interest payments by the end of this decade than it will on defense. That's a crazy, crazy figure. And yet you have a reality in which... 49% of the American public who are paying little attention to the fight over the debt ceiling and another quarter of Americans paying absolutely no attention. So basically 75% of America doesn't care and isn't paying attention to this. And so it's not particularly surprising to me that there are people on the Republican side who are running for president who don't want to emphasize 
the debt ceiling in their campaigns and don't want to be bolstering Kevin McCarthy on this in particular. It's just not something that I think really plays well broadly on either side with the American electorate. But it is nevertheless a really substantive problem. And Idris, how we end up here is that Republicans win power and cut taxes, because that's what they like to do. We saw that when Donald Trump was president and when Republicans had Congress. Then Democrats come in and they actually don't particularly like raising taxes. So Joe Biden infamously promised not to raise taxes on anyone earning less than $400,000 a year, which is a crazy high number. And they want lots of new spending programs, the Inflation Reduction Act, other things. And so you run that again and again over enough cycles and you increase spending and reduce revenue and you end up with debt to GDP where it is now. Yeah, right now it's it's just about equal to the size of the U.S. economy. It's on the trajectory to keep increasing because entitlement spending is going to increase over time. Um, there isn't very much uh, fiscal discipline at the moment. And the concerning part about that is that America's had a ramp up in spending despite the fact that it's not presently at war. The economy hasn't hit a recession. And you want enough slack left over to do a Keynesian-style demand subsidy. And, uh, you know, you have to be able to do that without net interest uh, increasing as as large as it is. I think America has benefited from its, not only its its economic, underlying economic strength, which Simon uh, wrote about in his excellent cover a few weeks ago, but also the fact that America has the dollars, the world's reserve currency, has let it get away with not only antics like the debt ceiling, but this fiscal trajectory as well. You, you, you might remember, if you blinked, you might have missed it, um, Liz Truss's premiership, which ended basically when she put out a, a fiscal plan that didn't make any sense and the bond markets revolted. Sorry to break it, but you know the Britain's a slightly declining economic power. And so that kind of thing doesn't work. Whereas in America, I think there is, there is a little bit more of an ability to get away with some of this stuff. Yes, your comments about Britain are entirely fair, Idris, though to defend my country, I'll point out that the current debt ceiling deal expires in January 2025. So we'll be having this conversation all over again with our listeners in January 2025. And the first 100 days of the next presidency is going to be consumed with dealing with the um, breakdown of the latest debt ceiling deal. So we look forward to that. Okay, in the meantime, let's go quizzing. Um, I have a quiz for you this week about Kenya's debt ceiling. No, I don't really. Um, It's about something more relevant to America. Question one. We talked a little earlier about the theory that the 14th Amendment could be used to get rid of the debt ceiling, which Idris poured cold water on. So my question for you is, when was the 14th Amendment added to the Constitution? Post-Civil War, obviously, but what year, please? I think it was 1867. That sounds specific and correct. (laughs) Um, That was specific and very close, but one year out. It was ratified in 1868, so the states agreed to it then. It passed Congress two years earlier in 1866, just closer to the end of the Civil War. Along with the 13th and 15th Amendment, it's better known for extending rights to African Americans at the end of the Civil War. I, I just wanted to give you the midpoint to spare you the two dates. Oh, yeah, of course, obviously. You're splitting the difference. That was that was very good. Thank you. That was really kind. Question two. The most recent amendment to the Constitution was the 27th Amendment. When was this ratified and what does it do? I think that was the one in the 1990s that prevented Congress from increasing its own pay during its own session. That's very good. That sounds extremely likely. Again, 
my participation in this quiz is just judging Adrees' answers based on whether they sound reasonable. I think that does. That one sounds reasonable. That passes the Charlotte test. It is indeed a reasonable and correct answer. The 27th was ratified in 1992, and it stopped members of Congress from giving themselves pay rises in the the lame duck session, essentially. This was an amendment that was actually first proposed along with what would become the Bill of Rights in the 1780s, but it took over 200 years for enough states to ratify it. As we've talked about on the pod before, amendments to the Constitution used to be more frequent before um, parties polarised along ideological lines and it became extremely hard to get big enough majorities to change the constitution, uh, which is a bit of a problem. Okay, well, that's it for this week. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Stevie Hertz and Harriet Noble. Nico Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. That makes it possible for more people to find Checks and Balance and start listening to it. You can explore our whole archive in one place if you'd like to do that at economist.com slash checkspod. And you can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance for you next week. <laughs>